Welcome to See the Change podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Ayala, Communications Director at Sea Change Initiative. This is a space to bring together community builders and change makers to hear the stories and inspire them to take action for social change. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe and connect with us online. Today is part two of my conversation with social policy researcher and nonprofit founder Mayumi Sato. She shares her observations on elitism in academia and how she aims to break down structural barriers through mentorship and solidarity. Let's dive in. Once your your projects wrapped up in Thailand, where did you go next? So uh, um, once I left Thailand, and that was uh, in 2019, late 2019, I came to Cambridge. So where I am now. So I started my postgraduate studies. Uh, I did a master's in sociology. Uh, yeah, and I've been here for a little over a year. Um, and my my focus was mostly um, on on racism, anti-racism, and and uh, transnational uh, solidarity movements. Okay. And is there still a, an aspect of your research that it incorporates the geography that you were working with previously? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the central element to the discipline of geography is that, you know, it, it relates to space. And I think when you're talking about oppression, you naturally are looking at, you know, distributions of power in space and across time. I think uh, when it comes to my, my research, um, I focused a lot on also the the use of like digital technologies and creating new global anti-racist movements against the prison industrial complex. And that itself is, you know, has a very spatial element in understanding how like online and offline spaces have created new opportunities for um, movements of anti-racism. So it's, it's definitely geographical in nature. Uh, the more I, I, grow up and, and read literature of different disciplines, I'm starting to realize that, you know, all of these issues are interrelated and, you know, uh, the lens that I use in analyzing my research is also very intersectional. So, you know, I, even though it's quite common in the academy to become very siloed in, you know, into the nature of your own discipline or one, one area of research, you know, I think if you really look at what the research is focusing on, I think that they do have more in common than we actually perceive. Okay, that's really interesting. And since you arrived at Cambridge and began began your research there, how has your academic experience differed than from McGill? Um, has it been uh, a good setting to, I guess, facilitate the research that you are, um, I guess, passionate about? Uh, the, the system of like education in the UK is very different. And I mean, it's quite hard to compare because I, I came here from a master's rather than my undergrad. And it would be, I, I wonder what that would look like if I had done, you know, a year abroad here when I was um, doing these. But there's a lot less class time uh, in in Cambridge. So, you know, when you do need to seek uh, some kind of mentorship, it either comes to these like one-on-one -on -one supervisions with your supervisor. Uh, but 
not other than that, you know, it's kind of up to you to find these interesting lectures and reading groups that you can be a part of. Um, and so like, you know, you, you do choose your own environment in that way. Uh, I think like I, because I learned so much from my classmates, I think that at the beginning, I kind of struggled to understand yeah, at McGill. Sorry, I learned so much from being around my peers and my classmates at McGill that I kind of struggled to understand how I was going to learn uh, at Cambridge in the same way. But as you know, I, as I realized, you know, the way in which you learn within an academic institution doesn't necessarily have to happen in like a linear fashion. And um, for one instance, uh, one of the professors in the Department of Sociology uh, was working with incarcerated people at a maximum maximum security prison in um, Cambridgeshire. And so I had the opportunity with a few of my classmates and who are now all, um, my friends. Um, and we actually got to read some literature from the autobiography of Malcolm X and um, dramatize them and have conversations around what it meant and connect it to different um, structural forms of, of um, oppression. And I thought that that was super interesting. I mean, uh, you can learn so much from outside the academy. And this one, this opportunity gave me an opportunity to bridge, you know, both the, the sort of empirical realities of what's happening outside the academy and also the theoretical things that I was learning inside the classroom. So, um, yeah, I would say it's, it is definitely different. Um, I, but I would also say, you know, there are similarities between Cambridge and McGill as well. I mean, the, the elitism for sure, mm. uh, the homogeneity of students demographics, I would say is quite similar to some extent. Uh, yeah, I think, um, <laughs> that unfortunately, in higher education, it's just not, you know, most students are typically from white upper middle class families, um, white or East Asian, I guess, in, if you're talking about the US or Canada. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, this is something that unfortunately is like pervasive within higher education. So, I mean, I hope that I can help break this kind of pattern or disrupt this this pattern that I have been noticing throughout my my studies. Have you considered maybe any ideas of how to continue breaking that pattern or how to, I guess, recruit students from different backgrounds? Do you have any ideas for that? Yeah. Um, well, I think for one, if I do go the you know profess the route of professorship, I think like me existing as like a woman of color, you know, or just in general, a scholar of color, and that in and of itself could provide mentorship to other students who are in a similar positionality, you know, because I think that there are just so many experiences, especially in academia. I mean, I think people are very willing to dismiss the kind of lived experiences or personal knowledge that people bring to the classroom. And, um, you know, I think for me, like, I would just want to be a good mentor to other racialized students um, who are hoping to pursue a, a pathway in academia as well, but may not have, you know, professors that look like them or understand their experiences, you know, because maybe, you know, they, that person, uh, that professor comes from a position of privilege. Um, yeah, so de definitely like acting as a mentor 
um, to other students of color is something I aspire to do, whether or not that comes through like the professorial route, maybe I would like to volunteer my time when I get older, you know, to help, for instance, like low income racialized students um, access higher education, because I do believe that structurally, if you are wealthy, and if you are upper middle class, and you are white, the, the amount of privilege that you have up until that point, you know, when you're 18, 17, applying to universities, you know, you're already in a very good position vis-a-vis -vis other um, marginalized identities into getting into university. And for me, I, you know, I just fundamentally think that this needs to change because, you know, it, you unfortunately do require, you know, typically higher education and even more, you know, postgraduate degree to now sort of pursue a professional path and, and especially in high positions of power. So that's one way I'd like to change. But I, I also like recently um, created my own organization and that that's um, an, a virtual knowledge and resource hub um, that works on like educational equity. So I'm hoping to launch a mentorship program through that actually that would mentor high school students as they apply to different universities um, worldwide, but probably focusing on uh, English-speaking universities just from capacities alone. And um, I would like to, through this program, just help students build their confidence in knowing that like they are capable of pursuing higher education uh, and, and guide them through the process. And hopefully um, with the funding that we're getting in, I'd also like to help pay the, the kind of fees that's required to apply to these universities, because I think that, you know, cost is also a huge deterrent why people don't think about attending higher education. Wow, that's actually, a, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and I guess it was your personal lived experiences that inspired that? Yeah, for, for sure. I think, um, yeah, when you're young, you don't want to like admit any of the, <laughs> these things that, you know, are so stigmatized, right, in, in society. But I think now, um, I've come to terms with it and understanding that it's not just like an individual problem, but it's your, you know, your life might just be like a symptom of a, of a much larger structural and systemic issue. And, you know, it, you know, especially if you grew up with a single parent or a single mother, you know, you're in a financially precarious position, you're racialized, um, you live in an under-resourced neighborhood. I mean, all of these things you know, can put you at such an extreme disadvantage. And I think, you know, the fact that I'm able to resonate with some of those um, struggles for me makes me realize that, you know, now I'm in a position of privilege. I have a master's degree and hopefully I will be able to pursue PhD one day. And, you know, you know, I feel like I, because I've been lucky to reach this point, I should also give back to the community um, and help other people who might have been in this, that are in the same position that I was in, you know, maybe 10 years ago try to reach that same goal as well. Okay. And diversification as a racialized person can feel a bit of a heavy burden at times. How would you like to see your, you know, more privileged peers or, or colleagues, those folks that come from white upper middle class backgrounds, how would you like to see them demonstrate their allyship? Yeah, this is, this is kind of a difficult question. I mean, I think, you know, of course, there are some, you know, white upper middle class people who can sympathize and 
try to invest their time and resources as well to, to invest in like people who have not had the same opportunities as them. So I don't want to like make it attribute all of these issues to like, a, you know, an individual, because I do believe that it's just a structural a systemic issue. I, but at the same time, I, I have noticed that, you know, within university spaces, you know, because universities are often seen, seen as like, quote unquote, liberal, and um, that sometimes people who believe that they are being allies, in fact, are kind of um, taking away opportunity, or they're taking up a lot of space and speaking over people of color who are trying to tell them, you know, this is, you know, hear me, listen to me, this is what I think needs to change about, you know, educational access at our university. And so I, I see this quite frequently with like well-intentioned um, people who believe, you know, allies who want to do good work, but then in the process might be speaking over those, you know, marginalized folks. And so I think, you know, in terms of allyship, it's one recognizing that um, we all have to do some serious like introspective examinations, you know, if we are being advantaged in, in one way, it's probably coming at the expense of somebody else. And that's not to say that we should be like constantly measuring ourselves up to other people and um, determining who is like the more, more oppressed between two people. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that, but I'm thinking that it provides clarity and understanding, you know, that you know, just because you say you're an ally and you have this equity lens doesn't mean that you can't cause harm. And I think that is a really critical step to take first. And um, then secondly, it's, you know, making space, maybe that means not talking all the time and not taking up all the space and opportunities all the time, but like allowing those who actually are carrying the brunt of these um, social injustices to be the ones who are you know, developing the solutions for them. I think that's probably also very important. Through your um, studies and, and your field work, you mentioned that young students maybe sometimes lack confidence. What has been, I guess, maybe the, the, the biggest moment of growth for you, maybe when you decided personally that you would begin taking up more space? Um, that's a good question. I think my third year, like second semester of undergrad at McGill, I remember there was one class that I, I was always so anxious. I was a seminar style class and I was always incredibly anxious before each class and I would do the readings thoroughly because I was so scared of saying something stupid. I mean, I always feared that I was uh, going to be seen as kind of this ignorant student, didn't really know what she was saying and you know, when I reflect upon that class, I realized it wasn't necessarily me, but it was kind of the the curriculum and the the kinds of things that we were being told to read. I mean, a lot of the readings were very problematic and they upheld very um, like elitist views within the academy, um, very conservative views. And so for me, like I always, I was quite scared to express my opinion in that class, but, you know, gradually over the course of that class, I just was so worn down that I realized, okay, like this is, I have to say something. And once I realized that, you know, you can challenge uh, uh, your professor's opinion or, or you can express your dissent and, you know, 
you can do it and that's healthy. That's when I started realizing, you know, this is actually something that I that I should start doing on a larger scale. And I can do that through my research or I can do that through my studies and I can also do that in my work. Um, so I think that's definitely the, the turning point, actually. Like I can even kind of remember <laughs> the course quite well. Uh, but yeah, I think um, what we're realizing now in universities is that the kinds of things that you're being told to read are often shaped around what we consider to be like the canon. But the canon itself is like made up of, you know, very um, white middle or upper middle class men um, or like scholars. And, and they have excluded other people who whose voices should be included in higher education. So, you know, people, scholars of color or low income people, activists, like that's never really seen as like knowledge. It's never seen as scholarship, but, you know, that is also em empirical knowledge in my opinion. So I think just, yeah, challenging making space, like when I decided to make space for myself came at the realization that like, you know, you don't always have to conform with the rest of society in like in terms of knowledge production and and your value system that's really that's really interesting that you do remember that turning point and i think many of us do as um racialized people or, or women that have felt under underrepresented um you know i guess essentially it's like our whole lives until a certain point and now that you're at Cambridge and um, you're you're looking to continue your studies, what are you excited about for the future? Oh yeah, this is. I feel like this is a good question because I'm always kind of criticizing right <laughs> society, and it's good to look the, um, at the reverse. Yeah, I think there's. I mean, especially with this past year, I mean, there really is um, a, a new presence and like re-emergence of public discussion around like of prison abolition. And I think that that's quite interesting for me. And, um, you know, this is obviously what my, my master's dissertation was on. And so the fact that, you know, while I was writing my dissertation and like, you know, typing this up on, on my laptop, that this was also a very central discussion, even when I wasn't working uh, on my dissertation, I thought that was really um, enlightening for me. Uh, so I do think there's a lot of hope for activism. I don't think that we should be surprised that um, it emerged in the way that we, you know, it emerged this year with like George, with George Floyd, you know, because obviously this is built, these movements like Black Lives Matter, they are built on the legacies of like decades and decades and actually hundreds of years of racialized resistance. So, you know, I think we often forget that, right? This is not just a new thing, but, you know, this is people of color have been resisting white supremacy and oppression for a really long time. And finally, there is some recognition that is reaching the mainstream. So I'm excited to like capitalize on that. And I hope that while this traction continues that, you know, I can develop scholarship or do some work through my organization that's going to shed more light on these issues and hopefully inform, you know, policies or, you know, inform people's ways of thinking. Uh, because ultimately, you know, if you want to change the culture of a society, you also have to change the ways in which people think. And so I think that you, you, this can be done through scholarship. Okay. And would you have any suggestions for people outside of academia on how to keep up that momentum? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um, people who are organizing every day. I mean, I really respect 
this, you know, I think it's actually a lot easier to like sit behind a book and like theorize. So I think if anything, I think academics really should be keeping up with like organizers as well. I mean, the two are always seen as distinct, but I think they can definitely work together. Um, yeah, for me, like I, I always look at, you know, racial organizing, racial justice organizing, climate justice organizing, gender justice organizing. And like, I'm super inspired by the fact that like some people really take this on as like a a full-time job and whether that means like working five time five jobs just to be able to like pay their bills just because they're so passionate about changing um the issues that they are addressing so i think yeah like they should just continue i would say continue what you are doing um but probably you know there should be more like inter interdisciplinary and intersectoral like cooperation i think you know they should be organizers shouldn't just be doing it alone I think a lot of people outside the organizing community should also be participating um, in their space as well so that's something that I hope to do in academia and also outside of academia okay amazing yeah I think that we're we're kind of turning a, a page and entering a new era and I'm, I'm excited for uh, the future as well into I guess continue that that hope um, and you know at sea change community first is the pillar of our vision what does community first mean to you um i think yeah community first i think it to me it means not prescribing a particular solution over how you know a community can develop or advance i think um, oftentimes when we believe in uh, an intervention of some sort or the development of a so-called underdeveloped community, it seems like we already think that we know the answers to this problem. Um, but we're not really thinking like, what does the community actually want and what is going to benefit them most? Um, so I think, you know, I don't know if it's through our education systems or whether it's through the kind of um, privileges that, that we have as being part of the global north or an industrialized economy or through a capitalist economy. But I feel like we've been so indoctrinated to believe that, you know, development equals, you know, economic development. And, you know, that's not always the case. Um, and I think community first would mean that communities themselves are taking the lead in understanding how do they actually want to develop how do they see um, people exercising their own rights um, rather than like you know us entering a community we don't belong to and telling them how they should live their life yeah that's a that's a great summary of the of the concept and um, i'm I'm really excited to see what you do next and to see how your your studies and and your work progresses I think there's uh, so much drive behind what you do and it's for myself it's really inspiring to see uh, someone in in your position to keep that momentum going thanks for listening to see the change podcast this has been a sea change initiative production written edited and produced by myself tanya ayala music by charles the emperor if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. 
To catch all the latest from Sea Change Initiative, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. For more information about our guest, check the show notes for more links and resources. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.